Welcome to EW's Game of Thrones weekly podcast. I'm James Hibbard here along with Darren Franich. We're talking No One, where we got Arya's big showdown with the Waif. I know some of you are upset about how that went down, and we're going to talk about that. Along with the fan theories that totally went bust, Jamie's repressed longing reunion with Brienne, and Tommen's betrayal of his own mom. Just He's just the worst son ever. Uh, Darren, what are your initial thoughts? James, my initial thoughts about no one is that this is like my favorite episode of Game of Thrones in two or three years. Um, I was so taken with it right from the beginning, uh, which started with a long sequence of uh, Lady Crane performing as Cersei. As I think I said on this show before, I'd be totally down if Game of Thrones just became all about this sort of community theater recreation of scenes from earlier seasons. I just loved it. I mean, I really felt like just the feel of this episode somehow we were really able to spend a lot of time with these characters in a way that we we don't often get to do now now that the show is so spread out um and i guess i kind of want to start with the aria sequence um because you know i I think i've been on the record as saying i'd be very happy if this entire subplot were to perish in a gigantic uh, supernova of of wildfire but i just found you know aria's sequence with lady crane i just thought that that was a character who immediately felt so real and so vivid and like she had a whole life of her own and so even though she wound up dying horrifically almost immediately i felt like that death really carried a lot of weight in a way that some deaths just haven't as the show has gotten more murder happy in in, in recent years um and you know it's funny i actually loved that showdown with the waif just because i like how the waif became robert patrick in t2 just she she was even doing the the t1000 run towards the end uh which i just thought was really interesting what, what but so it sounds like people were kind of upset about how that played out in the end yeah a lot of people were upset because of the way it ended and uh we'll get to that in a second but yeah the entire chase scene was very intense the music was you know re- you know really engaging and you're just and she's doing these like parkour leaps and she has the the, the terma wave chasing after her she had the sort of rigid arms and this little slight smile not even really slight smile like a big smile like, like it's almost <laughs> like for like you know months or years or however long she oh she's been at the house of black and white all she's really wanted to do is kill aria the entire time and, and now this is what she finally you know she she's finally been like let off her leash to, to like like sprint you know after her with a knife in hand just ready to to end aria you know for once and for all and you had these like these bone crushing leaps uh, and uh yeah it was it was it was exciting stuff and where people got upset is at the end you didn't see their final confrontation and uh, so w- what do you think about uh the way she, you know her trick with the uh with the candle and and uh sealing her into darkness for for that and then cutting away from that i thought that was so cool cards on the table i also think the sopranos has the best series finale of all time so clearly i enjoy like complete anti-climaxes and you know super ambiguous sequences i like action scenes that have kind of a punchline. you know that you know that it's not just that they're kind of building and building and getting crazier and crazier but they're also kind of 
of telling this sort of story with, with with a twist ending. And I just loved how you're watching that sequence and you're thinking, okay, this is this is a scene about them fighting, and everything before then is just lead up. But then the chase scene just goes on and on, and Maisie Williams, who's become such a great just physical performer. I mean, I like how she made every jump at the start look very parkour, as you said, and very cool. But then she would land the jump and would go tumbling. And, and oh god, the, the whole sequence of her falling down the stairs. All I could think of, James, and I, I mean this as a compliment to the show, was the scene from The Simpsons where Homer is just slowly falling down the mountain, and you think like <laughs> it's definitely going to be over with, right? Nope, nope. She just ran into another basket full of peaches, like, and that seems to be blood. And but what, what I liked at that scene, you realize at a certain point, oh, this chase is really like the meat of the scene. I guess like, like Arya's tactics, uh, you know. Looking back, like you could maybe like poke holes in the idea that she was somehow always planning this. But I was especially struck by the fact that you think they're about to have a showdown, and then Arya shuts off the light. By shuts off the light, I mean she uses her sword to chop off the candle, which is a great visual. What I realized was that's probably because she sort of learned how to fight while she was blind, right? So, so the the waif who is a much better fighter in every way, she was taking advantage of the Waif's one weakness. Again, this all goes back to how I I do think the writers of the show have so kind of uh, internalized what's great about the book series. Because here again, you know, you have the Waif thinking, well, this is a showdown, and this showdown will follow basic rules of honor, and, you know, this is the way this has to play out. And Arya's like, nope, I'm going to Kobayashi Maru this and totally change the rules of the game. So I, I appreciated that. I understand if people just really wanted to see Arya kill her and tear her eyes out. Like, come on, we've seen Arya do that to somebody else. We don't need to see that again. <laughs> and what's interesting is behind the scenes, uh, we talked to Maisie Williams this week, and she talked about how she actually had them tone down the craziness of that chase scene. That she came in on, you know, to, to like perform it and the stunt team like walked her through and they had her doing way more superhuman parkour moves uh, throughout the whole thing. And she was like, no, Arya wouldn't do that. She, she, she wouldn't, she wouldn't do something complicated when something simple would, would suffice. She, she's not flashy. She's not trying to be this like a, uh, like superhuman warrior. And um, so they actually dialed it back at, at her insistence to make it more realistic and more grounded and to show Arya's being more vulnerable, which to me is, is, is a very smart thing uh, for for an actor to suggest that, you know, that that doesn't make her look nearly as cool, but makes it uh, much more believable uh, as a way of pulling it off. And she was talking about how she felt bad because, you know, the stunt team's job is to make everything look as great as possible. And she's like, no, I don't want it to look too great. I want it to look like something that's rooted in Arya's character. I love that. I mean, you know, there's just such a sense of it is so difficult in an action scene to have a character who is is doing cool things, but doing them in a in an entirely realistic fashion? And, and like I, all I could think of was, you know, this is something you see a lot of in Edgar Wright movies, where like you know, in um, in the World's End, a bunch of like drunk middle aged British guys get into like an epic fight, and it's a cool looking fight, but none of them are good at fighting, and it's it's a weird sort of like note to hit. And I, I I'm so taken by the fact that Maisie Williams was like, no guys, like you know, she's not Batman. She's she's kind of like like very wounded, in pain, young Jason Bourne right now. Like, you know, we actually want to see her sort of get get injured over the course of this. Your recap 
brought up something uh, about this whole sequence that I had never e- even conceived. There was a fan theory that Arya was basically Ed Norton and the waif was Brad Pitt in Fight Club. Exactly. Yeah, there's this whole sort of Tyler Durden fan theory that had been going around. Picked up in a, in a lot of outlets, too, this idea that the House of Black and White had basically hypnotized Arya this entire time to think that that the waif was real and she wasn't really real and she was basically fighting a figment of her subconscious. And that's how the waif always knew what she was thinking. And the other part of the theory had that Jack and Hagar only usually talked to one of them at a time instead of talking to both of them at the same time. And so, like a lot of these fan theories, it sort of zooms in on a lot of little details and tried to create a sort of grander conspiratorial idea out of it that was going to change everything that we had, you know, conceived of. Basically, what we saw was what was really there, and that is that the the waif was a real person who just really wanted to kill Arya. <laughs> and to your previous point about the candle move, uh, you know, I understand why people were frustrated by that, because in that moment, the uh, the emotional reaction you're going to have is, hey, wait, no, don't turn off the lights. You know, I, I want to see what happens next. But, you know, we've all seen these movies where somebody has to fight in the dark and, the, the, you know, the filmmakers always cheat. It's always like, well, let's just make it really dark gray and have the actors with their eyes really wide open as if they can't see. And, you know, and so uh, and that's always kind of kind of takes me out of it a little bit because uh, it's supposed to be pitch black. So and I like that Thrones embrace that. OK, you can't see what's here, so we're not going to show it to you. Um, there's no you know, silence of the lambs, night vision goggles for, you know, uh, you know, to, to, to be able to show that, you know, green perspective <laughs> of the wave hunting Arya. And uh, so they just cut away from it and then, you know, gave the reveal of uh, her showing up at the House of Black and White with uh, with uh, the wave's face, I guess, and, you know, <laughs> in her hand. Let's shift gears, uh, if, if you don't mind, into um, another storyline that uh, perhaps resulted in some people being frustrated, even though I loved it. Should we talk a bit about like all the various things that went on at uh, River Run this week? Definitely. Um, yeah, with uh, with Brienne arriving just in time to go into the Lannister Hornet's Nest and have her reunion with uh, Jamie. So much to take in here. Uh, you know, at River Run, you had the Blackfish, Catelyn's uncle, who was sort of just was sort of last standing himself and his family's home home castle. Uh, you had Brienne arriving. You had her kind of reuniting with Jamie Lannister for the first time in uh, over two years. One of the things that I really appreciated about this whole sequence was, and again, it gets back to how it just felt like there was a lot more time this week was that we didn't just get Jamie and Brienne, which was certainly the kind of, you know, all-star scene that we tuned in for. You also got that great sequence beforehand with Pod and Bronn, having just, you know, a nice little two very minor characters seeing each other again for the first time and being probably more excited to see each other than anybody has on on, on this show. Uh, what did you think about the, their kind of interaction and how it led into the Brienne-Jamie moment? It was so uh, big brother, little brother. I mean, he practically put him, you know, a, you know, in a headlock and gave him noogies. You know, it was just like so <laughs> warm. And there's a moment in there where I once again had this feeling wash over me of if they ever kill Pod, I'm going to be really unhappy. I'm going <laughs> I am. I mean, that's the thing that could like really bring me to tears on, on, on the show. You know, he's such a sweet character. 
And I loved that. And this is just a sort of a clever screenwriting thing. The way they put the romantic subtext between Jamie and Brienne crudely into the mouth of Bronn. So before we see them meet, we have Bronn giving voice to the things that the audience has thought previously with those two characters. And it sort of adds this subtext going into the next scene that might not have been there nearly as strongly had he not made, made the, those comments about, oh, you know, you know, you know surely, you know, they want to have sex with, with each other. One of the things that I think is so great and unique about Brienne and Jamie is that a lot of times with, with shipping culture, I get sort of frustrated because, and, and you know, it's fine. Like, you know, people can enjoy things the way they want to enjoy things. Sometimes I get frustrated because it does seem like we're really kind of reaching here to try and define this relationship in that way. With Brienne and Jamie, there's just such richness there. And every person on this show has a wound. Some of them have multiple wounds. Some of them have lived a whole life that is nothing but constant wounds, and the scar tissue has sort of just constantly formed around them. But I love how with Rhiannon and Jamie, you really have this sense of here are two people who sort of understand each other and know sort of know each other's wounds and know what motivates each other. And you can read that in so many different ways. And the fact that, I think that you, you pointed this out in your recap, James, like, the fact that, like, they never really have a chance to just talk about each other, that they're always on some mission or they're always defined by their duty to another person or, in, in Jamie's case, you know, their, their deep love for someone, which totally relates back to Brienne's deep love for Renly and her, her deep passion for her duty. You know, there's just a lot of texture to their interaction. And uh, I, I was especially struck because I know, you know, you, you sort of spoke to the actors about this scene. It must have been great for them to kind of get back together because they were they worked so closely together for for a couple years there and have not been in the same scene since I, I think like the start of season four. Right. And and Nikolai and Gwendolyn are two of the closer actors on on the set. They just love hanging out with each other. They love teasing each other. You know, they're, you know, they, they, they have a lot of off-screen chemistry as well. So they were really thrilled to have a chance to work together once again. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 all, it's probably the most like British of relationships in this, you know, there's a sort of remains of the day oppression that goes on when you have them, them together where they're both, you know, they're both like you know, in military uniforms and their backs are straight and they're, you know, practically saluting each other. And, and yet underneath that, there's all this emotion that is unclear. It's not clear whether, they have romantic feelings for each other or, it, you know, to what degree those feelings exist, you know, or whether it's just friendship and, and respect and, uh, and, and how much is one, how much is the other. And I'm sure if you were to ask those two characters, they couldn't tell you th themselves. What did you think in general about Jamie in this episode? I mean, you sort of made the point a few times in your recap, James. He is a very different person now than he was when we first met him, to such an extent that, you know, I, I was almost thinking he's obviously a, a very different kind of leader, but seeing him in his sort of big, you know, big sort of commander's tent, I was so reminded of the first time uh, back in season one that we met his father. And, you know, th there's, there's just this sense that, like, Jamie has changed so much over the course of these last six seasons in a way that, you know, even with, with some characters who've been through hugely transformative moments, you don't quite feel that change as much as you do with him. He has changed, and yet at the same time, 
He hasn't. What I thought was really interesting was the callback to his most infamous line, you know, the things you you do for love when he was talking to Edmure, because ultimately, even though he's handling the situation very differently than he would have in season one or season two, he's still willing to be exactly who he was before. He's still willing to kill a child to get back with his sister. The heart still wants what it wants, and he's still willing to to just be a, a total mass murderer if that's what it takes to get him what he wants. But he doesn't want to, at least at the very at the very least now. You know, he has he has a sense of of the weight that those actions carry at this point. And he smartly negotiates for a a different type of outcome. I, I thought his scene with Edmure, if you've ever tried writing a screenplay, there there it's 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 so much more difficult than what you think it's going to be. And dialogue is the toughest part. And the way that dialogue in that scene goes from him sort of uh, dangling these carrots in front of him and then Edmure, you know, you know, lashes out at him and then the way it shifts, it, it doesn't follow any easily thought about linear path, but it's so organic and the conversation flows in unexpected and interesting yet completely logical ways and it's a really beautiful piece of writing that 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 scene and i just thought uh nikolai just acted the hell out of it I've talked about this a bit on the podcast, probably enough that that people are, are bored of hearing it. Jamie on the show feels a lot different to me than Jamie in the books, even though like right now their plot lines are essentially identical. There's there's been some kind of like variation along the way, but this is sort of where we we kind of last see Jamie in our most recent entry from the book series. Jamie on the show, it's it's so interesting to see him up against the Blackfish because the Blackfish, as we established in this episode, just he didn't he had. No hope of really ever succeeding. He just kind of wanted to go down fighting. And what's funny is that Jamie is trying to sort of like, you know, get that situation to be much improved. And this is how, you know, he sort of takes a, a page out of his brother's book or his father's book and uses something besides violence to win the day. But I'm so struck by the fact that Jamie himself really seems like he's on his own kamikaze run now. Like, he he is so devoted to his sister despite everything else that has happened. And there's just a real sense of fatalism to that. And I think that, you know, who knows? Uh, the show may last a, a, a good long time now. It's generally, it's generally conceived that we're probably closer to the end of the show than the beginning. And that just lent that, that last moment between him and Brienne so much power as she is sort of, you know, she's sneaking away on the night. He's the only guy on the battlement. He sees her leave. I have to believe that's probably the last time they see each other. And if not, just just surely Brienne feels that way as she looks back. And you, you just feel that she kind of knows, like, this is a guy who's kind of made his choice in life. And maybe he doesn't even think it's the right choice, but that's the one that he's going to follow. And I just, I loved how, you know, that was the drama. Like, you know, the show had set up a huge scene of a huge castle and just the visual quality of it all was great but that was the sort of real elemental appeal of, of, of that whole plot line in this episode which I just absolutely loved yeah and Jamie uh, avoiding uh, you know bloodshed in that is sort of a, a running thing in this episode because you know as we previously talked about you had Arya and the, the waif scene you know ended up being off camera 
uh, you had the Blackfish then then die also off camera. You have this uh, castle action siege um, that didn't happen because it was avoided uh, through through Jamie's uh, cleverness and and uh, verbal brutality at the very least. And also in King's Landing, you you, you had uh, this other clash with the with the Faith Militant um, that we keep thinking is about to happen, and then once again is almost largely avoided, except for the poor soul who decided to try and put an axe into the mountain's armor. <laughs> you may correct me on this. For me, it's usually a good bet that there's not going to be anything, like, too crazily disgusting violence-wise until, like, the back half of an episode. So my girlfriend and I had just sat down. We had just started eating. It was very tasty pizza. Right then is when the mountain pulls the guy's head off, and you can, like, barely see, like, like his, his, his spinal column as he pulls the guy's head off. And I was like, well, okay, it's, it's going to be this kind of episode now. <laughs> I love Franken Mountain, as I think you've you've called him, or or, or Mountainstein. What, what's what's the preferred nomenclature, James? It's Ben Mountainstein, but I I think fans have been saying on Twitter that they prefer Franken Mountain. So uh, yeah, I love Franken Mountainstein, and I I I love that he's basically like the scarier version of Mongo from Blazing Saddles, and I, I just I, I'm so taken with him as a kind of running visual. But what, what I especially found. Interesting about, you know, it's funny hearing you say that people were really frustrated by all of that stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm frustrated with, with the Faith Milton period. Like, next to the Faceless Men, they're the other kind of corner of the show that whenever they pop up, I'm just like, God, like, can't, can't someone just, like, burn them all to the ground? Um, but I was so taken with the fact that in this sequence as in the Jamie sequence, you essentially have political maneuvering as an attempt to prevent violence. And in this case, of course, it's the king and Kevin Lannister and the Faith Militant who all clearly know, well, you know, there's a reanimated super corpse uh, who's probably going to fight for Cersei, so we need to figure out some way around that. I, I love that, I mean, poor Tommen, like, he cannot even do th the wrong thing right, but I was so taken by the fact that in saying that they were not going to allow trial by combat, he gave this sort of really lovely, quite progressive speech about how, you know, tr trial by combat is primordial and, you know, it's, it it's a, it's a crime and, you know, of course, you know, we should only have, like, trial by uh, Westeros jury or, you know, standing in, in front of the seven, in front of the seven or, or whatever it is. So I, I definitely appreciated all of that. But also, I mean, realistically, like, I mean, there is something we are building to here, right? I mean, what Cersei was talking about with her freaky uh, maester, that rumor, like, that, that is something that that feels like that is going to be a huge thing, whatever that is, right? Yeah, I mean, clearly they're, you know, this whole storyline has been adding tension all season, and clearly they're building to something, and it seems like she has some sort of idea at this point, um, but, you know, it's, um, if you're confused by that exchange, you're meant to be confused by that exchange, you know, you didn't miss anything, you just don't have complete information yet. Um, but, you know, to me... You know, this this scene was so uh, incredible when the first they kicked out, you know, Cersei out of the royal VIP area and put her into general admission at, at, at like the back of, of the throne room. Then they had Tommen, her own son, read off this decree to basically take away her best chance of survival and the, the watching Lena Headey. Uh, the the different 
expressions that went over her face as she realizes that she just I mean, she's already lost two of her of her children, and now it's like she's lost another one. And, you know, to be betrayed in that way, I mean, Tommen, I mean, let's face it, he's a bigger pussy than Sir Pounce. I mean, the guy is just <laughs> terrible. He's a terrible son. You know, he, at this point, it's like Joffrey was was evil, but at least he was good at being evil. You know, at least he was effective, you know, vaguely at at being, a, you know, a total terrible person. You know, T- Tommen isn't effective in anything. It's uh, he's just a tool at this point. Here's one thing that I'll push back on just a little bit, because, again, one of the things that I love so much about the whole Lady Crane arc is that, you know, the show is very aware of the fact that the events that we have seen from our kind of privileged, omniscient perspective, that is not how the people of Westeros and the people of this world have experienced these events. And I'm so taken by the fact that, you know, everything Tommen is doing on the page, if you know, if, if you'd never met him and you didn't realize, like, well, this is just someone who is a sad little puppet boy for whoever happens to be the highest status grown-up around him at, at, at any point, everything he's doing on the page, you're kind of like, well, I mean... I can really see the bards and the songstresses and the actors really playing him up as a positive ruler. I mean, you know, even like his sort of actions right now, giving more power to the faith militant, you know, in a way that's kind of like, I, I forget if it was Charlemagne or Charles or whichever Holy Roman Emperor it was, but all I know about Rome starts and ends with, with the TV show Rome, but there was some Holy Roman Emperor who created the Holy Roman Empire and basically like brought in religion and brought in Christianity to that empire and you know that's kind of what he's doing and i'm sure to a lot of people it's like well this is great like you know we've had so many totally loudish layabout kings like his own uh, his own father who you know was sort of famous a- a- as a scoundrel like now we have somebody who seems like he's all about religion so i'm taken by the fact that from the outside everything he's doing seems like probably quite positive and reasonable but but of course to us we're just like tommen like everything you do is 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 for your own family's worst worst possible uh, outcome. Lena Headey, I think, is doing such great work this year, James. And her reactions in that sequence are so interesting because, you know, when we first met Cersei, she was just such a famous person and so kind of beloved by people just because she was so this kind of shining star of Westeros. And now, obviously, you know, people just despise her. And yet she seems to only get more powerful somehow, even though we just see her being, like, chopped off at the knees at all times. I mean, what what do you think is her kind of perspective as she goes forward from here now that she's been betrayed by essentially, yeah, like the last child she has left? I agree with you about Lena Headey's performance. I remember in episode three of the first season, she has that sit down with her husband, uh, King Robert. And that scene is a great scene. I mean, she there's there's so many great performances in the show that I think are award worthy. But I think she's probably the most overdue for an Emmy. And, uh, you know, every single year I, I, I sort of advocate for that because she just uh, kills it in scene after scene. And yeah, I mean, obviously, her goal right now is just simply to survive. I mean, that's she may be seemingly protected in this castle and a important royal figure. But make no mistake, I mean, she is on the chopping block at this point. And now they've set a trial date. You know, you know that was their part of Tommen's 
speech. Uh, they have a specific trial date for her and Sir Loras, uh, who who also who's probably the most most uh, screwed character of of the ball at this point. I mean, he, <laughs> I mean, we've barely seen him at all, all this season. He's just been being uh, to horribly tortured. He has no leverage uh, at this point unless um, his sister Marjorie can can pull something out at the last minute to to to, uh, to avert. You know, you'd think all this whispering in Tommen's ear that she's been doing. Uh, that has to be to some degree for her brother, right? And so uh, there has to be some there has to be something behind the scenes going on where you know even though what he said uh, will, will seemingly condemn Sir Loras, I mean there has to be some uh, machination behind there that uh, that Marjorie is doing to try and protect her brother because that's why she's motivated to stay there and and fight this out in the in the first place. Let's pick up a little bit with the Hound, who, uh, as as you point out, he seems more different after his sort of mini resurrection than Jon Snow did after his actual resurrection. <laughs> I'm really enjoying this new Hound. Uh, he there's a lightness to him that wasn't there before, and I mean that both in terms of his physical movements, in terms of, of his, his tonality and his speech, in terms of the things he's saying. It's like he's very much a, a new man, and he's just less burdened and, and stoic and, and, and haunted and, and grim than he was in the previous seasons. And that makes him, like, real, 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 really fun to watch. So he met up with um, Beric Dondarrion and Thoros, uh, uh, the Red Priest, in their sort of um, Sherwood Forest uh, meetup group that they have going on. Just some subtext here. And again, I, I, I don't even think that this is a spoiler a- anymore, um, and I, I'm not going to spoil this spoiler too much. Like, there is a character named Lady Stoneheart. In order for her to appear, Beric Dondarrion would have to not appear. And boy, I it, it was like, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi hearing like, you know, a million voices crying out and then being silenced. When Beric popped up on screen after being gone for four years, I was just like, ah, shucks. Well, I guess we're not getting to that. Another example of why I think this season's been so interesting is the reintegration of characters from many seasons ago. I thought, I think it's been handled really well. You kind of pointed out, James, that uh, the Brotherhood Without Banners, they're basically just kind of camping warrior hippies, which is how we've always experienced them. I found this scene interesting because it really seemed to put a mission statement on top of Beric and Thoros and the Brotherhood, you know, because I kind of feel as if the last time we saw them, they were just kind of more this merry men bunch of people, you know, trying to do what they could to help the, the small folk of Westeros. The fact that they seem so explicitly now pointed towards the White Walkers and towards the kind of horror rising in the north, it really felt to me like, okay, like, even on this minor level, the show is kind of stitching this stuff together, pointing in in a certain direction now, um, which, you know, the, the, the prospect of the Hound using his crazy axe abilities against White Walkers and Whites is certainly something to look forward to. Yeah, yeah, it does give that storyline a direction, and obviously they, they offered uh, the Hound an opportunity to join them. And they did it using language that echoes what Brother Ray uh, told them in the previous episode, that it's, you know, it's never too late to sort of change your path. And uh, so I, I, the expectation that I have is that he'll take them up on that offer, you know, you know, just based on the wording of that pitch and the way that scene ended. I'm intrigued to see where this all goes. I mean, um, in the books, The Brotherhood Without Banners, 
becomes very different as the books go along and mainly kind of like uh, sort of off screen or, or, you know, like without necessarily ever following them. There's just kind of this very ambient sense that their initial mission statement as you know, this merry band of warriors for the underclass, you know, that that mission really drifts and they become much more violent as, as time goes on. And I, I'm very struck by the fact that the show seems to really be treating them at their word as people who are fundamentally good and are fundamentally very focused on the greater sort of uh, battle yet to be fought. I mean, really, James, the Red God seems like he's maybe like the real God as far as these things go. Like insofar as like, I mean, everything we're seeing about him and his people is somewhat less crazy, or at least it's more focused on actual White Walker-related policies as opposed to whatever policy the, the, the many-faced god is, is is focused on. What I'm saying, James, is Game of Thrones has been red god propaganda all along. <laughs> James, n- no no conversation about a Game of Thrones episode w- w- would be complete without uh, a chance to talk about some disappointing scenes in Marine. There's almost too much to unpack, really, uh, because... You know, the sequence in Marine began with the spider setting off on a kind of, you know, some secret mission for the good of Danny and, and her bid for the crown. Um, and, you know, any parting scene on Game of Thrones is always kind of weighted. But I, I was especially sad to see those two leave just because I, I, I love the spider and Tyrion together so much and you know those those two performers together I feel like are so delightful so that that kind of got things off to a really you know surprisingly emotional beginning before we move on uh, now is the part of the show where I get to ask a Game of Thrones trivia question last week's trivia question we asked for three examples of a sibling killing another sibling we had to have three. Uh, just four examples that you could have chosen were Stannis and his scary dark side thing, killing Renly. Uh, Danny watching as Viserys uh, was killed, sort of indirectly killed by her in front of her. Uh, Balon uh, killed Euron Greyjoy, characters I know we all care about a lot. And of course, Ramsay killed his baby half-brother. Further proof that he's a swell guy. Each week, We ask a question about something that's been going on in the wide world of Westeros and Essos and beyond. Uh, Please send in your answers to gotpodcast at ew.com. We'll do a random draw of the correct answers, and whoever wins will get a cool prize. Uh, This week's question, James, we're heading to... Uh, the quote-unquote Bastard Bowl next week, uh, where we're going to see a showdown between, I think, uh, our two favorite bastards. Who was the first bastard on Game of Thrones who killed someone or who we saw directly order the killing of someone? Now it's time for us to move to my favorite segment, Dark Wings, Dark Words. Ah! You can send in any questions or comments you have to gotpodcast at ew.com. We'll talk about it on the show the way we're doing right now. Uh, Here's a question from Kevin Roby. Now that Arya has decided to return to Westeros, do you think she seeks to finish her list or instead has changed her mind and will join either Jon Snow or the Hound once more. What do you think, James? I don't see Arya changing her mind about that list, but at the same time, it's like, can't she do both? And could she enlist with Jon Snow? And then when she ever gets in proximity to somebody on her list, just go, hey, you know, actually, 
uh, give me a few minutes. I, I have I have something I need to do real quick, and then and then pop off and kill them, and and, and then come back to uh, join the fight. I don't see them as as mutually exclusive. I, I do think the fact that she said going home. I mean, there are, are different ways to read that. Maybe she just meant going to her home country, which would mean Westeros, which could mean anything. I, I definitely interpreted that to mean home like Winterfell, like the North. Um, but yeah, like as, as you point out, James, I mean, you know, it, it would sort of almost not surprise me if the end of Game of Thrones is a deep flash forward many years and we see that Arya has sort of spent the ensuing years after whatever final battle there is just slowly checking off her list. Here is a question from a fellow by the name of Dan F. Is Bran's ultimate goal to eliminate the White Walkers? Or is that the mission for Danny and her dragons, as is widely speculated? This is that kind of a, a cool question, James, because I realize we saw so much brand stuff at the start of this season, almost kind of like, you know, to a point where it really felt like that was going to be a defining part of, of this season. And, you know, some of his flashbacks, people who are big into the books know that there was a lot we thought we were maybe going to learn that we didn't precisely learn. Um, I definitely feel like it's been pretty well established that, like, the White Walkers are definitely, like, mission one for him. Um, I am intrigued by the possibility that there is more than just one mission that he's been set up for. Uh, what's your kind of interpretation of, of that story arc? I see Bran as potentially being like the Nick Fury of Westeros. He's going to assemble this Avengers-like team of all the you know different people whose backstories he now knows through his visions and be able to pull them together to fight against the White Walkers. You know, that's that's just sort of my my pet theory. But you know, in the short term, he's been told to go to Castle Black. That's what apparently his new mission is, though we don't know if he's going to get there or what's going to happen once he's there. To dig even deeper into Dan's great question, I mean, this saga is called A Song of Ice and Fire that is interpreted lots of different ways. But one of the main interpretations is the idea that you, know, you have the absolute avatars of ice on one side, the, the White Walkers from their horrifying ice castle up in the land of always winter. And then on the other side, you have the avatars of, of fire and, you know, the, the Targaryens and the dragons and these beings that just seem to coexist on the exact opposite end of the biological chain. That is theoretically where we're leading. But, yeah, th that does not seem mutually exclusive. Like, you know, just because Danny is sort of Captain America, that doesn't mean that Nick Fury, in the, in the case of, of Bran, doesn't have another really important role to play. James, I think that about wraps us up for this week. But next week is going to be incredible. I was on set for uh, The Battle of Bastards. I will have so much to say about that one. This is going to be incredible. If you've seen HBO's preview, um, we have it on uh, EW.com if, if you haven't seen it yet. For next week, they put out like a 60-second uh, trailer. It's going to be easily the biggest battle that the show has ever seen. As, we, as we've established, uh, you know, Jon Snow, great guy. Ramsey Bolton, I'm not so sure about him, frankly. I, th I think he may have some interpersonal issues. Seems like he seems kind of sketchy. We'll see who people are are rooting for in, in this particular showdown. Uh, but I think it's fair to say there's a probably one uh, popular vote uh, there. But hey, uh, if, if anyone loves Ramsey Bolton and wants to tell us all about it, you can email us at gotpodcast.com. You can follow James on Twitter at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. If you like this show 
go ahead and subscribe. You can leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you in any way you choose to get in contact with us. We'll see you next week on EW's Game of Thrones podcast. Thank you.